Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging technology and offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Ralph Tor. I'm the head of floating offshore wind here at the RE Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ryan Burgess, Director of Offshore Wind at EDF Renewables in the UK. In today's discussion, we'll dive into all things floating offshore wind, exploring the challenges we're currently facing and the exciting opportunities that are in the pipeline, looking ahead to where we might be headed within the industry. Ryan, welcome to Re-Energize. Before we get started, I wonder if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our listeners and giving us a bit of an overview of your background and your current role at EDF. Hi, Ralph. Thanks for having me. I'm Ryan Burgess, Director for Offshore and Ireland at EDF Renewables UK and Ireland. In terms of my background, I've actually had caught the offshore bug around 12 years ago, having started life as a lawyer, construction and engineering procurement focus, getting major infrastructure projects ready for FID and through that final investment decision and into construction and then quickly moved from schools, roads, hospitals into renewables projects, starting with onshore wind, solar and a bit of hydro and then moving into offshore wind and honestly never looking back. I made a stint in an energy company as an in-house lawyer and then made the move ultimately to work for an IPP in a commercial role and have taken it from there in the last five or six years, focusing on the commercial side of development and getting projects in the offshore space across the UK, Europe, North America and Asia into construction. I've been in the role with EDF as director for over a year and a half now and delighted to be able to support the portfolio that we're growing there from an operational portfolio of offshore assets of just 100 megawatts today to an ambition of three and a half gigawatts by 2030, helping to support and accelerate net zero in the UK and Ireland. So I'd like to kick off the episode by talking about what I think is <laughs> a lot of people have been talking about over the last week or two, and that's the recent outcomes of allocation round five, the CFD allocation round. So in terms of the outcomes and I guess some of the decisions that have been made in, in reaching this point, what do you feel this means for the development of floating offshore wind in the in the UK? I guess both in terms of the short-term challenges that that presents, but also the kind of long-term impacts that that might have on the sector. Yeah, I mean, I think like you say, there's been a lot of noise around this in the last couple of weeks since the disappointing outcome of allocation round five. Nobody would dispute that the UK is a world leader when it comes to renewable energy and the industry itself, and particularly for offshore. But our efforts in respect of being able to bring forward the nascent technology of floating and what that can do in terms of supporting net zero for the UK are being hampered by a framework which is lacking in terms of its ambition and its deliverability for this new technology. So whilst the CFD is a fundamentally good mechanism, I think we would say that the UK government need to reconsider the administrative strike prices applicable to these newer technologies and the wider auction parameters to support the development of floating wind specifically. If that doesn't happen in the longer term, the UK will miss out on the opportunity that floating offshore wind represents in terms of the significant associated benefits to energy security, meeting net zero targets, and also the industrial opportunity in terms of supply chain development and local infrastructure. Allocation round five CFD portrays an unrealistic picture that floating offshore wind is not deliverable. And I think it's important that people recognise that's not the case. This is not about industry seeing that there's no pathway forward for these projects. It's just that the CFD mechanism and the way it was designed for allocation round four doesn't really allow for floating offshore wind to take off in the same way that it did for fixed bottom in the early years. 
We really want to see the government be able to put in place the right parameters to allow the CFD to do the job. I mean, it's fair to say that it is a disappointing set of results for the offshore wind industry more generally and within that floating offshore wind. And that is obviously going to dent confidence. But there may be a temptation in parts of the industry for kind of knee jerk reactions. But I guess what we're really looking to focus on now is how do we put in place a set of measures that do allow us to move forward to rebuild some of the trust to ensure that we can take key stakeholders along with us on this journey of deploying offshore wind and floating offshore wind particularly. So are you able to share your views on how we might put those measures in place and indeed what those measures look like to the UK of floating offshore wind? Yeah, I mean, I think you you mentioned it there nicely, Ralph, in terms of the UK government and industry working together. I think it's absolutely key now that there's a collaborative and two-way dialogue that happens between industry and government on what it will take to restore that investor confidence. I think we've seen some of the right signals from government and civil servants in terms of being open to that dialogue, but it needs to be in really active listening and learning mode. In terms of the framework itself, I think you know our recognition in, in this timeline is that allocation round six is pivotal, and therefore there isn't a huge amount of time to do an overhaul of the CFD mechanism or the support mechanism or an alternative support mechanism in respect of floating offshore wind. But it's about looking at how we can finesse the CFD and how it will work for floating in this immediate term. So I think yeah, the sustainability of the administrative strike price for floating offshore wind, absolutely the number one priority. Um, and I think in terms of doing that, we need to have the government and civil servants working with industry to build that up today and real-time evidence base and recognise you know, that there is a time lag between when they might put in place the draft ASPs and the finalisation of the overall framework for AR6 and consider whether or not there's some ability to be flexible there and to have some transparency around the overall pricing methodology. And I think secondly on the priorities for me would be then recognising that the ambition for AR6 for floating needs to be such that volume is the priority. You know, bringing forward all of the test and demonstrator projects that are eligible in that pipeline for AR6 will be absolutely essential to claw back some of the lost ground that we've seen through AR4 and AR5. I guess here in the UK, there's obviously a strong focus on the UK market and the UK opportunities, but ultimately floating offshore wind is a significant global industry, I guess, with projections out to 2050 of north of 250 or even 300 gigawatts. And even if we look out to 2030, we've got potentially up to 10 gigawatts of floating offshore wind capacity to be deployed around the world by then. Within my organisation, the Floating Offshore Wind Centre of Excellence programme has played a key role in supporting the development of the industry, particularly with the focus here in the UK. And obviously delighted to have EDF and 17 other developers involved in that program. That's a broad program in that we're looking at a wide range of the challenges that it faces, not just the policy stuff that we've talked about, but some of the innovation challenges that we face, environmental interactions, supply chain, ports, etc. So I guess this leads us to the big questions around what more we can all do to move forward. And in terms of those kind of broader key enabling actions for floating wind in the UK, I guess in your view, what else is required Who do you feel is best placed to take those enabling actions forward? And I guess ultimately, when do we need to be starting moving these actions forward? Developing 10 gigawatts of floating offshore wind globally by 2030 will require a real concerted effort. When do we need to start taking those actions? The time is absolutely now. 
when we think about the UK, as I mentioned, we've really lost some ground over the last couple of years with allocation round four and allocation round five in terms of being able to deliver some of those test and demonstrator projects, um, which will support some of the learning, innovation and cost reduction um, journey on being on the journey to cost reduction happening in the short term. I think the actions and collaboration that we need to see are from various stakeholders, government, industry, academia and the supply chain. We need to see continued investment in research and development. For the UK, it will allow us to unlock considerably more low-cost renewable energy, harnessing areas that have stronger wind resource and deeper depths and further out to sea. As you say, by 2050, we expect to see over half of offshore wind developments to be floating, complementing the fixed foundation turbines that we already have in the water. Test and demonstrator projects like our Bly 2 project are essential to de-risking and accelerating that floating offshore wind deployment. I think some of the other enabling actions that we really need to see is that anticipatory investment around infrastructure development, ports and grid connection. You know, I think one of the biggest topics that we discuss a lot of the time when we look at the potential for floating offshore wind, particularly around the UK, but otherwise also in a part of our global pipeline where we're also looking at floating offshore wind in countries such as France and Norway is the ability of the local infrastructure ports and harbours in particular to be able to support multi-hundred megawatt gigawatt scale floating offshore wind in this timeline. Ports, in order to upscale the requirements to be what is needed for floating wind, you know, that timeline is five to six years. If you look at trying to start construction phases for projects that are seeking to be operational in the late 2020s, early 2030s, again, it just emphasises that the time is now. And I think the government and other parts of industry need to recognise that no one single entity can take on that challenge in and of itself. We need to be able to work together and collaboratively in order to deliver those changes. And similarly, on the supply chain side, you know, I think we recognise that there is a huge upskilling required in order to get to the point of being able to fabricate and manufacture multiple units of these floating technology foundations, but we just are not quite where we need to be yet. And similarly, from a skills perspective, we need to be able to utilise a lot of the skills base and workforce that we have elsewhere in the industry and be able to make sure that they're transferable over into what is the future for floating offshore wind. I think, you know, there's been a lot of good work done in the industry over the last couple of years particularly around port infrastructure. And I think if we focus on floating offshore wind, it's probably worth highlighting for listeners that the role of the port in the delivery of floating offshore wind projects is much more significant than it is for fixed wind. So we've got a huge amount of offshore wind to deploy over the next couple of decades. And the ports, whether it's fixed or floating, are going to play a huge role in delivering that. So port development and investment is something that we need across the whole industry, not just floating. I guess, Ryan, you'll have a view about what the UK needs to do above and beyond building more ports or bigger ports <laughs> uh, to kind of capitalise on those. So, yeah, any thoughts you've got on where you see the UK's big opportunities and I guess what we need to do to capitalise on those? Recent estimates would suggest that between now and 2050, the floating wind sector could create 37,000 jobs and generate 52 billion in gross value add for the UK economy. There's no question that that is a significant opportunity. On the jobs aspect, you know, like I said, the UK is well placed with a lot of highly skilled workers, particularly if we think about moving into the the just transition, oil and gas workers, other people coming off sort of old traditional coal powered power stations, etc. We have a lot of skilled workforce, but we need to be able to utilise transferable elements of those skills. We also need to address the growing skills gap in terms of being able to put skilled workers into this new industry. 
from a skills gap point of view, you know, I'm really pleased from an EDF perspective that we have our Destination Renewables Programme, which is an award-winning first-of-its-kind initiative to bring the private sector into the classroom and focusing on kind of roots up education of some of the younger generation. So we're looking at sort of 16 to 18-year-olds rolling out college courses alongside Pembrokeshire College initially and looking at where else we can deploy that around the UK. And I think that plays into the STEM aspects around innovation organizations like yourselves were very strong in supporting that innovation story looking at how can we support the growth of industries in a way that other countries are maybe not already thinking and deploying early stage capital and realizing the benefits of that in the longer term journey i think there's a lot to go at for the uk beyond the major infrastructure elements and also not least the acceleration of net zero that we want to see from the deployment of large-scale floating offshore wind I mean, the UK is a really, I guess, interesting case study for broader kind of industrial development in that we have this kind of unique challenge slash opportunity associated with the energy transition. So as you've highlighted there, floating offshore wind represents some very significant economic opportunities for the UK. And they're ultimately kind of new economic opportunities. So there's an industry developing that just wasn't there before. And we will need to invest and train to create additional workforce to allow those projects to be developed and delivered and owned and operated. But I guess we are also working our way in the UK to 2050 through a kind of energy transition. And there will be a really good opportunity to transition world-leading skills and experience from the oil and gas sector into particularly floating offshore wind. A lot of floating offshore wind's challenges are around subsea engineering, uh, monitoring and inspection, cabling systems, subsea mooring systems, subsea structures. These are all areas of you know real strength that the UK has. So as well as creating this kind of greenfield new economic opportunity, float offshore wind represents a really excellent opportunity for the transition of economic opportunity from oil and gas across into floating offshore wind. It'd be interesting, Rianne, to get your views about how do you think floating wind can kind of place itself at the centre of that transition from oil and gas over the years ahead? And I guess, what do you see the main challenges to kind of realising some of that? But also, I guess, where do you see those opportunities in your own mind? I think in terms of how do we promote floating offshore wind as creating and being that opportunity for the just transition and particularly that movement from a number of highly skilled oil and gas workers into you know supporting the growing development of floating offshore wind. The critical point here is to highlight the crucial role that floating offshore wind will play in the long term in respect of that energy transition. Floating offshore wind has grown in terms of its um, profile in the UK in the last two to five years, primarily from the industry realising that the days of large scale fixed offshore wind in the UK waters is coming to an end because we have reached that sort of consenting headroom in the nearer shore, shallower water areas. And to be able to continue offshore wind at scale, we need to be looking at floating. And so therefore, it already has an advantage over the fixed bottom market in the UK in terms of that longevity piece. It will provide security of jobs and long-term development opportunities for those oil and gas workers who potentially are near the start of their career. I think it's important as an industry, we really highlight that and promote the narrative around the critical role that floating offshore wind will play in that transition and ensure that people in those highly skilled jobs in other parts of the energy sector realise the opportunity that's in front of them. 
I think in terms of the challenges, what we see is it can be difficult from a transitioning point of view to be able to verify the skills and the transferability from oil and gas as an offshore industry to renewables and wind turbines and installation of foundations in a new energy industry. So we need to be able to make that something that is more transparent and navigable for the people who are looking for the opportunities. We don't want to make it such that it feels that there's a huge administrative burden on those highly skilled workers to be able to utilise their skills in the sector. We need to reduce those barriers to deployment of their skills and ensure that they're able to do so in a way that's rational and agile. Thanks for that. And I guess it's worth highlighting at this point as well that my organisation, the RE Catapult, are one of the things that we'll be talking about at the Floating Offshore Wind Conference in October up in Aberdeen is the new Floating Offshore Wind Innovation Centre up in Aberdeen. And one of the key functions of that centre is to try and support the UK-based supply chain to help transition skills, experience, products and services from oil and gas into floating offshore wind. So the centre there will be a blend of kind of office space for our staff, but also there will be a technology testing and demonstration facility there in Aberdeen as well. And again, we very intentionally focused on areas of existing UK strength. So there'll be a number of test capabilities they're sitting in there focused on dynamic cabling systems and also mooring and anchoring systems and also the UK's existing capability in terms of just managing and, and coordinating marine operations. So some interesting capability and development there relating to project construction and OM. I guess a lot of focus there on the UK, but the UK certainly isn't the only market looking at developing floating offshore wind. And I think um, with all the discussions around AR5, it's very easy to get focused on uh, the UK market. But I guess If we start even just initially expanding our horizons across Europe, we've got France moving forward. We've got Italy moving forward, a whole range of interesting projects. We've got other markets, Norway, Sweden, et cetera. Interesting EDF, obviously operating in a number of different markets, both UK and Europe and further abroad. From your perspective, how is the kind of international market developing in relation to the UK? Who would you see as the UK kind of competing with, if that's the right word, from a market perspective? I think the UK does need to pay close attention to competitor markets and that global race for being able to take that sort of world leading position in floating offshore wind. As you mentioned, you know, EDF renewables, we work across multiple geographies and we're developing floating offshore wind in a number of places across Europe and more broadly. In France, we are a world leader in offshore and with our partners have won four out of the seven offshore wind projects awarded recently by the French government including Saint-Nazaire, the first in France. And Saint-Nazaire really has kick-started France's offshore supply chain industry, which will no doubt be a great support for floating offshore wind in the future. And from a floating perspective, along with our partners Enbridge and CPP Investments, we've also been developing Provence Grand Large off the coast of Bossemer. So PGL is the world's first commercial project using tension-leg foundations with a bespoke hull design allowing operation in challenging depth and met-ocean conditions. And once commissioned, the project will produce around 25 megawatts of power, equivalent to being able to support the electricity needs of around 45,000 homes. The demonstration project will provide us with valuable feedback for the implementation of future projects, but also enforces France's future desire to ensure that it has a, a viable floating offshore wind market. They have already started their leasing process for future floating offshore wind 
projects and they're taking somewhat of a stepping stone approach. So looking at what have been sort of test and demonstrator scale projects of 25 to 50 megawatts and ramping up in quite a rational way, looking at um, leasing rounds of 250 megawatts, then 500 megawatts and beyond. And I think that's a very sustainable way of thinking about bringing forward the industry and allowing the country to ramp up from the supply chain and infrastructure efforts of these earlier stage projects like Provence Grand Large into what will be the longer and larger scale term opportunity. You know, other markets that we're looking at are Norway, where we're jointly developing the potential for a 500 megawatt floating offshore wind farm at Sierra Nord. And there, you know, we're looking at being able to build on some of the learnings from the earlier stage projects. Innovation and sustainability in the local community will lie at the heart of how we look to develop that project in the market. Similarly to the UK, they're looking at that as a competitive leasing ground. But again, you know, they've taken a more rational approach in terms of the scale. So it's 500 megawatts versus the sort of gigawatt scale that the Celtic Sea is looking at. So I think, you know, from a global perspective, some of the other markets have taken a slightly less big bang approach than the UK. And I think we will see that yield some benefits because it provides some early stage investor confidence about the nearer term pipeline. But it also allows the industry and the geography to catch up in terms of what is needed to be able to deploy those larger scale metrics. So from a UK perspective, it's important that we don't lose sight of the ability to scale up and how are we going to do that? And so again, we come back to this challenge of AR6 needs to allow the testing demonstrator projects that foothold in the market to allow the supply chain to do their learning, to allow the developers to understand the, the risk profile and the delivery requirements of these projects, and then to be able to really capitalise on the opportunities of markets leasing rounds such as the Celtic Sea and the Scotland projects, which are obviously already far on their way and keen to deploy mm. as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly really interesting looking across the different markets at the different approaches that are being taken. I think each of the markets that we're uh, have a knowledge of with respect to floating wind, each of them is acknowledging that they each have their own role to play in supporting the development of floating wind globally. But they're also taking different approaches to how do they make sure that actually that particular market also gains the most value from the development and the deployment of those technologies. And so you've got examples in some markets, for example, France, where the leasing and the revenue support mechanism are, are a kind of combined offering at the outset, whereas in the UK, we have a different approach whereby uh, there's a competition for the lease. And at the point you win the lease, there is no guarantee or guidance at all with respect to how the revenue support uh, and, and the level of the revenue support. And then you've got various different examples in between when you look across the different markets. That said, you know, the UK's CFD mechanism has worked very well for driving cost reduction in fixed wind, and it is a very flexible tool. So it, it does have the functionality that we need to support floating offshore wind. But the devil is definitely in the detail, as you see, about exactly how you set those parameters. And with floating offshore wind at this stage, as you say, Cost reduction, the biggest driver of cost reduction to floating offshore wind in the UK at the moment is volume of deployment. These early projects are about moving to the next level in terms of the scale of deployment, affording UK suppliers and international suppliers an opportunity to gain skills and experience that will help reduce cost. It's not about securing in the short term the very cheapest capacity. 
that is something that will be realised in the medium term. The CFD is able to support all of this, but ultimately it's exactly about how we use that tool. And I think that's going to be the real focus for AR6 is to how do we use the system that we've got in the UK to continue to deliver great value with fixed wind, but also to kind of nurture, albeit in a short period of time, uh, the growth of floating offshore wind projects and their deployment increasingly cost-effectively. So I guess that's looking at Europe, but even more broadly, we've got across in the US and we've got South Korea have started to show real ambitions in terms of how they're going to support the development of floating offshore wind. And that's starting to have some quite strong impacts on the kind of global market, particularly kind of investors. So supply chain organizations looking to grow global manufacturing capacity, but also, I guess, project developers who do have finite development budgets are starting to pay a lot more attention to these international markets to understand where best might they deploy their own development expenditure. Um, So I guess it'd be interesting to get your views on, I guess, both US and South Korean markets, but also are there other markets in development uh, that you're seeing at the moment? And how does the UK kind of continue to attract the investment that we need in projects as a bare minimum? But I guess beyond that, kind of innovation and supply chain organisations as well. I think you're right to call out the global opportunity that offshore wind and floating offshore wind can represent. EDF Renewables are investing in new markets all the time and we're doing that kind of global scanning exercise. And, you know, like you say, like any other developer, we don't have finite capital and they'd be able to deploy in all markets. So, you know, as a UK and Ireland director, you know, I'm always having to justify why EDF Renewables should be continuing to invest in offshore wind in our market, in our home market, over some of the other markets that as a group we're looking at, such as Taiwan, Poland. They have a large scale development pipeline in the US with our partners there also. But the UK is in an enviable position to continue to be a world leader in developing offshore wind and specifically floating offshore wind. And if we can capitalise on the opportunity that AR6 could represent to be able to continue to deploy that early stage volume and start that journey on innovation, learning down the cost reduction pathway, then we would be able to represent also not just the domestic opportunity, but the export opportunity that that can bring forward for us. And I think it's really important the UK doesn't lose sight of that either. As you say, the supply chain are really scanning all of the markets and trying to consider where best to put some of their manufacturing capability, where to deploy their skills, where is the next opportunity. And a few years ago, I think nobody would have questioned the UK. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, you know, we are, I am personally answering questions to my shareholders around, well, what is it that the UK government really are seeking to achieve with floating offshore wind? And how can we have continued confidence in that? And I'm sure I hear around some of the table conversations that we have around the outcome of AR5 that the supply chain are similarly having to go back to boards to justify either the existing level of investment they have or their future investment plans. So AR6, again, absolutely pivotal in that near term to keep the focus on the UK and ensure that we don't lose the momentum that was started with fixed. I think it's interesting when you look at some of these other markets as well. So let's pick the ones we've talked about, France and Italy. France have only recently deployed their first ever offshore wind farm, let alone floating offshore wind. They've moved very quickly onto floating. Italy's very similar, if if not earlier in the process. US is very similar, very limited offshore wind. So the point that we regularly make to stakeholders, government and others is the UK's track record on fixed wind 
with floating wind, we're not starting at the beginning. So if you look at the key drivers of cost reduction in fixed offshore wind, it's the scale of the turbines have had a huge impact, but also the cost of capital has reduced very significantly. With floating wind, we're not starting at the beginning with those. We are able to already leverage the cost reductions that have been achieved through the larger turbines because we'll be using broadly the same turbines. And in terms of the cost of capital, albeit we've seen significant interest rate rises over the last couple of years, which will impact both fixed and floating. But that investor confidence in floating offshore wind is come from the investor confidence that exists for fixed wind. So examples like the PGL project that yourselves involved, that was a project financed project. That's a floating offshore wind project to, to some extent to kind of demonstrate a scale project that has leveraged in large amounts of debt because the investor confidence there. So although floating offshore wind in the short term is more expensive than fixed wind, we are not starting at the beginning in the same way that we did for fixed wind. And so I think trying to ensure that kind of government and stakeholders really understand that, yes, there is some short term additional costs that will need to be borne to support the projects typically as we grow them in terms of their scale. But actually, we're already benefiting here in the UK from the fact that we've got much larger turbines available, much cheaper cost of capital than we would have had. And that, although it's a global set of cost drivers there, the UK is particularly well-placed because a lot of those investors do sit within the UK and have a knowledge of the UK market. So we really do have some enviable kind of attributes from our fixed wind heritage that are readily applicable to float offshore wind that a lot of these other markets don't have. And hence, we are really well-placed, ideally, to kind of lead the way, not just in terms of deployment, but I would say lead the way in terms of cost reduction. But that definitely requires this kind of balanced approach where we do recognise that developing the projects at the scale that we're going to need to, and particularly the supply chain capacity, will, will require more of a balanced approach and a more sustainable route to cost reduction. We will all shortly be gathering in Aberdeen for the UK's Floating Offshore Wind 2023 conference. I guess just a couple of reflections before we move to wrap up. What do you think the main kind of topics of discussion at that conference will be? And I guess where might you identify some particular kind of debates or discussions ongoing that could be particularly interesting at the conference? Any thoughts you've got on that? I expect there to be you know, a lot of energy around the AR6 framework, what that needs to look like and the discussions that we all need to be having with government and civil servants to be able to make the best opportunity out of that for floating offshore wind in the near term. And for those developers and supply chain participants who have longer term interests, I think there will be a lot of discussion around the supply chain opportunity, but also to some of the words that you used earlier, what are the enabling actions to ensure that the supply chain capability is there in the medium to long term for the larger scale projects? I think there'll be a lot of focus on that and also just a lot of focus on making those connections between developers and supply chain parties. I guess just a final question from me on the understanding that I have no doubt that you'll be on the invitee list for the Floating Offshore Wind 2024 conference. Where would you like the industry to be in a year's time? So if you're sitting down at Floating Offshore Wind 2024 in Aberdeen, uh, what what does a good year's worth of progress for the industry look like to you over the next kind of 12 or 14 months? So fast forward 12 months. And for me, I would love to be hearing about projects that are readying themselves for construction. Now, that's really what we would want to be seeing, that we've now kind of run the AR6 profile. Mm. That process has gone end to end. We've had the outcome and you have hopefully three, maybe more projects in the UK readying themselves for final investment decision and moving into construction. So mm. there should be a whole different energy, less talking and planning 
and more ready for preparation and understanding what it will take to deliver those projects. That would be a, a great, completely different focus to see in 12 months' time. And it should be achievable if we have the right conversations in the coming months. And I think particularly for the supply chain, the ability to attend the conference next year and to be hearing about organisations that you know, are winning contracts that are bidding on projects that are going to go in the water in the next couple of years. You know, we've spent the last couple of years coming together at the conference, talking about enabling actions, talking about pipelines, (laughs) but to be sitting down in a year's time and actually looking at these projects, as you say, moving towards FID, actual contracts getting handed out, people getting employed, ports readying themselves for actual construction activities, you say, I think it would be a great buzz. And really, ultimately, where the sector needs to be, if we've any continued desire to kind of grow the industry at at the scale that we're wanting to to deliver net zero. And to support that UK credibility piece. I think if in 12 months time, we are not having some of those conversations, the UK credibility really will be in question for Mm. me when you think about that in that global context as well. Well, I will come and find you next year and we can reminisce, <laughs> and we can reminisce about this conversation and uh, hopefully it's all positive. So I think that's us at the end of the episode. So I just say for me, thank you very much for joining. It's been a fascinating discussion to have. And hopefully for our listeners, it's been an interesting episode of the In Conversation with. I've been joined here by Ryan Burgess, Development Director of the UK and Ireland for EDF Renewables. Just say thanks for listening to the Re-Energize podcast. If this is your first podcast, I would very much encourage you to uh, rate through the back catalogue of podcasts, lots of interesting content there. And as I say, we'd love to get your feedback on the discussion that you've had. Please engage with us on social media and other platforms. It'd be great to hear your views and opinions. It's now time to de-energise until next month. In the meantime, listeners, you can find out more about the ORE Catapult's activities at orecatapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at ORE Catapult and now on Instagram at ORE.catapult.